I've never been uh, Black Friday shopping. Last year, um, I went to Walmart at 8 p.m. on Thursday, and the line was literally around the entire building. And I said, nope, and I went home. And so I've never experienced the crowds and the craziness as Black Friday. Um, but this is a crazy season, isn't it? We got all the crowds. Cyber Monday's tomorrow. Who's going to be on their computers at midnight trying to get all those awesome deals? Um, I might. I don't know. Um, but this is, this is the beginning of a season when there's going to be crowds and lines and people looking out for all the latest, hottest trends that we're going to be getting as gifts for our friends, for our family, for ourselves. Um, but during the season, as we're starting Advent, we're going to be staying in Mark as a church and talking about what Mark believes to be the greatest gift that's ever been offered to the world. So as Jason Williams comes up to read, I invite you to open page 696, Mark 3, and follow along with him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to called to him to those who wanted him, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that they might send them out to preach, and have the authority to drive out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jason. All right, keep those Bibles open. We're going to be in it. Um, and if you want to write in it, that is okay too. So um, first, before we dig into this, I want to try and set up the context for why this passage exists, and then we're going to walk through it and talk about what it means for us, okay? So first, I want, I want to talk a little bit about this passage. This is a transitional moment in the Gospel of Mark. What Mark does, he, he's a storyteller, and so as he's blitzing through the story of Jesus' ministry, he's just hitting the high points, right? And so this is a time when he goes, okay, we're going to stop, we're going to summarize what's happened up till now, and then we're going to change gears and talk about the way Jesus is going to be doing it now, okay? So that's what this is. But um, I want to show you kind of, Mark does this other places. Let's go back to the beginning of the book, chapter 1. You probably have to go back one page. Chapter 1. Verses 14 through 20, this is, this is another time Mark does the same thing. Because right before this, Mark spends about five verses talking about Jesus' baptism and talking about Jesus' temptation in the desert. Really short. And then all of a sudden, verse 14 comes and it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, the kairos has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So what's happening is he said, okay, here's everything he kind of just been doing, and here's a quick snapshot of what his ministry has been up to this point, preaching. And then the next couple verses, he stops and, and he slows down and talks about a few instances. So when we're reading through Mark together, we realize how quickly he goes through all the stories so that when he actually slows down, we want to pay attention. 
I mean, this is a normal storytelling technique, right? If I was to tell the story of the first pilgrims on the Mayflower, they come across the ocean, it's a long journey, some of them die, but they arrive eventually and they start building a town. That's like multiple months in half a sentence, right? But then we talk about the first Thanksgiving and we talk about the Native Americans who had mercy on these sick and destitute pilgrims and shared resources with them. And we talk about one meal. We slow it all the way down to talk about one instance because there's deep meaning there, right? Same thing. Mark does the same thing. In a few short verses, he says, Jesus did this, 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 and here's a quick snapshot of what he's been doing, but now let's slow down. And so what he does here is he talks about how he's going to change. He's been going on to Galilee preaching, and now he's inviting others to go with him. He slows down enough to name Simon, Andrew, James, John. He names where they are, what occupation they've been doing, whose dad was there, whose employees were there, and the fact that Jesus calls them and gives them a vision for what he's calling them into, calling them fishers of men. Okay? So he gives a summary and then a description of what's to come. Okay? So that's the same thing that's happening for our passage in, ver- in chapter 3. But since this is a summary passage, I figured I would attempt to do the impossible and summarize where we've been in Mark for the last 10 weeks. So I figure that Pastor Chris averages about 40 minutes of sermon, and that's 10 weeks of preaching. So I'm going to try and do it in 10 minutes. Do you think it can be done? All right, here we go. Okay, now I'm not much of an artist, but I think visually. So I'm going to draw a really quick map of Israel. Okay, we've got the Mediterranean Sea up here. This is the coastline. We've got the Sea of Galilee. We've got the Jordan River that goes south down to the Dead Sea. Okay, we're starting to see how this might be familiar to us if we have any geography background. If you're still lost, Jerusalem is somewhere around here. I'm not really sure it's in this general somewhere kind of near Dead Sea. And up here's Nazareth. This is where Jesus is from, right? Bethlehem's up here, Cana. Um, This area down here is called Judea. This is the region of Judea. And this is the region of Galilee. All right, so here's where we're gonna start. So I said, keep those Bibles open. So let's go back to the beginning of Mark and do this in 10 minutes or less. Here we go. Mark chapter one. John the Baptist, preaching in the desert, baptizing people by the Jordan River. Most of the people he's drawing are from Judea and, Samaria, or Judea and Jerusalem, so he's probably there-ish. He's doing that thing. Then verse 9, at that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee came to John the Baptist and was baptized. Immediately, the Spirit sends him out into the desert to be tempted. I've been told there's a desert somewhere around here, and so he spent some time out here. And so he spent some time out there, and then we're already to verse 14. It says, after John was put in prison. Now, Mark skips in one verse after John was put in prison, but from the other Gospels we know, John wasn't put in prison for a while. So this could have been close to a year later. And so in that time, 
Jesus probably gone back up here. Maybe already went to Cana. He probably already went to Jerusalem at least once for a Passover feast. But he spent some time here. But verse 14, Mark tells us the next high point is he's in Galilee and he's preaching and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Then verse, four, verse 16, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He calls his first disciples, say, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Maybe I'll draw a stick figure with a fish for a head or something. You can't see that, but it's really awful. Um, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Okay. Then verse 21, if you're still tracking, this is chapter one. They go up to Capernaum. Capernaum was up here on the norther, north, norther, north end of the Sea of Galilee. And he's preaching in the synagogue, and that's when he drives out an impure spirit, and the people are amazed at the authority at which he preaches. Then he goes down and around the corner into James and John's house where their mother-in-law is sick, and he heals her. And then news gets out that he's been teaching with authority and heals this sick woman. The whole town comes out, and he starts healing people. This is what Lee preached on about a month ago. Lee was preaching on rhythm, because after the whole night of Jesus healing these people, he wakes up early in the morning, retreats by himself, Maybe takes a walk by the lake, talks to his father, talks to God, rests in him, gets his identity back from God. And the disciples come out and go, hey, Jesus, there's a successful ministry back there. Where'd you go, man? There's people demanding to see you. We need to heal more people. And Jesus says, I don't listen to the demands of people. I listen to my father. And he says that I've come to preach. And so we're going to go out into Galilee. And so they leave immediately and do this for a little while. And they go to all the little towns and villages and preach in the synagogues and heal people. So now we're at verse 40. This is what John was preaching on. The guy with leprosy. Somewhere in this area, there's a town. Guy with leprosy is outside of the town. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. Jesus is indignant at the situation that's put him in that place. He has compassion on him and he heals him, restoring him his life because he was separated from the community because he had this horrible skin disease. But now he restores him. But because of that, so many people are hearing about all the miracles that Jesus is doing. Jesus is now forced to be out in the countryside because he can't even get into a town. It's so crowded. And John was telling us really well about how this is just a snapshot of the story of the gospel, how the world changes when Jesus enters it. That we're like the leper and we're unable to help ourselves, but Jesus comes, restores our life, and by doing that, takes our place. Okay? So now we're in chapter 2. Jesus heals a paralytic. So he goes back to Capernaum. So now he's back over here and he's teaching in James and John's house and it's really, really crowded. And then all of a sudden the roof starts caving in and there's this mat with this paralyzed guy dropped down on the roof. You remember this story a couple weeks ago? Okay. What happened was the teachers of the law were there and Jesus says, wow, the faith that you demonstrated by coming to me. Son, your sins are forgiven. And the teachers are like, that's blasphemy. And so Jesus goes, well, you know what? To prove to you that I can do this so-called impossible thing of forgiving sins, I'll do another impossible thing of making him walk again. And he says, get up and walk. And the guy's got to put his faith in something. Is he going to believe the teachers of the law or is he going to believe Jesus? And he puts his faith in Jesus and he walks. And so Jesus is starting through these things to reveal who he is as a son of God. Okay. Now we're in verse 18 of chapter two. He's still in Capernaum. This is what Pastor Chris preached on on Wednesday night for Thanksgiving Eve, if you were here. The Pharisees are fasting, and John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. John the Baptist's disciples are fasting because they're mourning that he's in prison, and they're fasting and praying for deliverance. The Pharisees fast because it looks good and it looks holy, but they use it to, to just rag on Jesus. And they go, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And he says, well, I'm the bridegroom. This is the wedding feast. Why would they fast? 
So the Pharisees aren't too happy with him, okay? Verse 23, Jesus is going out into some grain field around Capernaum, and they're picking heads of grain off, off the stalks, and they're eating them. The Pharisees go, he's working on the Sabbath, mom, mom, he's working on the Sabbath. And Jesus goes, come on, guys, this is not what this is about. He goes into the synagogue. There's a guy with a shriveled hand there. The Pharisees stand back. Is he going to keep working on the Sabbath? Is he going to do it? And Jesus, just knowing that, yeah, they've set up these laws and these rules to protect the Sabbath, but it's become an imprisonment for the Jews, that they're, they're, they're oppressed by the Sabbath. It's not a free thing. And Jesus says, Man wasn't created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created to serve man. There's this rhythm in creation to rest. There's this rhythm that God has built into the world and into us for a need to take a step back and be with him so that he can recreate us to go and live the life we were meant to live. The Sabbath is absolutely about health. So yes, I'm going to heal on the Sabbath, and he heals the guy's hands. And at that point, the Pharisees go start plotting with the Herodians, the followers of Herod, on how they're going to kill Jesus. That's chapter 3, verse 6, and that is the last 10 weeks of sermons in seven minutes. All right. So, but we're not done. Okay. We just set it up to where we're starting now. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now we know where we've been, and this is what Mark's going to do. He says, here's all the high points I hit. Let's summarize everything. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Eudemea, and the regions across Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Now, before we dig into this a little bit more, I want to show Mark is creating a parallel to the beginning of his story when he's talking about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he said, was drawing people from Judea and Jerusalem, which makes sense. This is where he's spending his time. That's where the crowd was coming. So Mark is using in this passage in chapter three to show, hey guys, you knew the crowd John the Baptist brought. Well, guess what Jesus did? Jesus brought people from around Galilee. A crowd from Galilee followed, which makes sense. My black swiggly lines show us that that's where he spent most of his time. But it also says he brings people from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Edomia. Edomia is a, a region down here south of the Dead Sea. They're coming up from across the Jordan. This is Damascus over here, Palestine, all this area over here on the other side of the Jordan. They're coming over. And from the regions around Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were really famous ancient port cities that are up here taller than I am in Lebanon. They're coming down too. So what Mark is trying to get at is this is a huge crowd, right? It's not just his disciples. There's people who are desperate for healing because they hear that he can heal and they just need to get well. And I'm pretty sure there's probably a lot of people that are just there to see what this whole magic show thing is about, right? There's probably a lot of people being like, oh yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Let's go down to Galilee for the family vacation. I hear David Blaine's in town. Only some of you got that joke. It's okay. <laughs> so there's this huge crowd of people, and it's not just his disciples. And so when Jesus asks his disciples, hey, get a boat ready, it's not because he's trying to escape people. It's because the sick people aren't throwing themselves at his feet anymore. They're like rushing forward to get him. You know, you see those really terrifying news stories about Black Friday, and it's like 
you know? He does, he's, he's afraid of being crushed. And he says, hey, let's get a boat so I can be out in the water just a little bit so I can actually teach them. So I'm actually able to heal these people that are crushing me in order to get healed, okay? So he's not trying to escape. It's so that he can not get crushed, all right? Let's move on. Verse 11. Whenever this evil spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So again, Mark is given the um, summary of what's been happening. And so we see everywhere Jesus goes, unclean spirits immediately know who he is. They fall before him and surrender, and they blurt out his identity. Now, just as, as an aside, I think it's really ironic that the demons know that Jesus is the son of God, but the rest of the crowd is just there to see the magic show and they see him as a miracle worker that's there to serve their needs. Even if it's for healing or, or entertainment, they're missing who he is and what he's there for. So I just think that's funny. But another thing that um, I've always had the question about and so I want to address a little bit is a lot of people ask, well, why does he silence them? Wouldn't it be a good thing for more people to be saying, hey, he's the son of God? As we see, as Mark reveals to us for the first two chapters of the book, Jesus is revealing who he is through the things he says and the things he does. He is showing. He's like, I am the son of man. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, I have the power to forgive. He's the self-revelation to show people who he is. So what it boils down to is this. Demons being the main evangelists for Jesus as the son of God wasn't his preferred method. So he keeps them quiet. But there's a, a tidbit of information that I learned that I thought was really interesting with, with how he silences them. Um, in verse 12, Mark says, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Now the verb that's translated gave strict orders is also frequently translated rebukes. Now that doesn't seem much stronger, but later on in Mark's gospel, Jesus also rebukes the wind and the waves to be still that it's that power that he muzzles the demons with and demonstrates he has complete mastery over them. He expels them and silences them with a single word. And I just think that's cool. All right, so that's the first half of our passage. That is a snapshot summary of Jesus' ministry mode up to this point. Crowds and healing. And now Mark slows down to talk about the moment that Jesus' model changes and uses it to look forward to the rest of how he's going to be doing ministry. Okay, So let's go to verse 13 right after that. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He then goes on to name the 12. But what Jesus is doing here is he's thinning the herd, right? This call to come as his disciples draws the distinction between the people who are just there for healing, draws the distinction between the people who are just part of the crowd and caught up in the spectacle of it all, and those he is calling, who are accepting the call to be his disciples and follow him and share in his mission. Okay? So this is what he's doing. Because the invitation to be with 
Jesus comes with the challenge to be sent out with his authority. The relationship that Jesus has with them comes with the fact that he's going to be extending his mission through them. They're not just on the receiving end of this authority and power, but they're invited into a process where they get to be the channels through which Jesus' authority and power touch others. He's saying, hey, I want to pour into you now. Something that starts out as a call to be fishers of men becomes a charge to go out and preach the kingdom of God. And Jesus demonstrates that that manifests itself in healing and casting out demons. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I hear that and I go, that sounds awesome. Become a disciple, cast out demons, sign me up. And, and yeah, Jesus says that comes with a job description, but there's more to it than that, right? The task of being a disciple of Jesus is harder than it seems at first. The 12 that Jesus calls are going to be learning that there's a difference between hanging around Jesus and truly being with Jesus. Because being with him involves that they must follow him wherever he leads. Being with him involves sharing in the toil of the ministry that he's doing. It means handling the harassment of the crowds. It means sharing in the same cup of suffering that Jesus must endure. But it also means that they get to witness his deeds and his words. They get to learn to live like their Lord so that they can extend his ministry of power. So this is the new model of ministry that Jesus is using. He's pouring into others so that they can extend his kingdom. This is the way that Jesus works until he ascends. It's the way he tells his disciples to keep doing it. And so therefore, it's the same invitation to us. When Mark records the invitation that Jesus gives to the 12, by extension, it's coming to us as well. The extension to be with Jesus and be sent out by him. So the question is, are you going to accept the invitation? Or are you just one of the onlookers sticking around because you heard this Jesus guy says some cool things and does some morally good stuff? Or are you one of the sick people that knows Jesus is the way to get well but if you're honest, you're really looking for that quick fix so you can get back to your life. What are you in line for today? What part of the crowd are you? For me, I don't want to miss the gift that Jesus is offering me. I mean, he, he's extending his hands to us and he's saying, come, follow me. I want to teach you how to live the way you were created to live. I want, I want to give you my life, the fullest life you can have. I don't, have you guys ever thought about that? That Jesus had the best life you could have on earth? Anyone ever think that? I mean, I know he didn't have an iPhone or, or a car. Probably didn't even have closed-toed shoes. I'm okay with that. But seriously, look at how his life 
affected the world through those who were around him. It wasn't even him doing all this stuff. It was just how he poured into those around him. I mean, look at the first guys he invites in. The 12, they give us a really good example of normal guys who are slowly learning how to live in submission to Jesus. Take Peter, Simon Peter, Jesus' rock. And you look at him through the whole gospel and even the other gospels, and he's really rock-headed. I mean, he's chopping away, gets some guy's ear, which either means he's really good at aiming or really bad. He denies Jesus right after that when they say, hey, weren't you with him? He's like, nope, wasn't me. And then after the crucifixion, he has his tail between his legs and he runs back to the only life he knew, fishing, and he goes, well, I guess that was a waste of three years of my life. You got James and John, the sons of thunder. All they're doing is making noise and ruckus, trying to claim who gets the best seat next to Jesus when he ascends to power. And these were Jesus' top three guys, right? They were the ones out of the 12 that really got to be with Jesus. They got to see him raise that one lady back to life. They got to see him in his transfiguration, and all they can do is keep thinking about themselves. But see, Mark isn't showing us the disciples as perfect examples. The disciples in the gospel aren't even supposed to be ideal examples. They're not the ones we base our lives on. They're, they're normal humans. And like us, they make their own choices and often fail to follow God very well. The one we base our life on is Jesus. Jesus is our model. He's the one we follow. But in spite of the failures of the 12, God isn't thwarted, Right? His power still works through them to extend Jesus' ministry. I mean, if you think about it, it's like this tiny group of really random people, some of them related to each other, a lot of them doing very different jobs, vocations in their life, that through the power of God in their life, they're transformed to be the heads and the leaders of this movement that literally changes the face of the world. Entire empires are affected by the good news of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. That's what I want. I'm sick and I'm broken and I know I need Jesus. But I don't want him to heal me so I can go back to my life. I want him to turn my life inside out and, and clean out the gunk and teach me to follow him so that my life can start to look more like his life. I want him to teach me how to follow him so that his power can work through me, not only to change my life, but to change the lives of the people around me. I want God to take my desires and my passions and my dreams and bring them in line with his full life so that I can learn what it means to really live I mean, I want God to work through my life to redeem the world and to spread the kingdom of heaven right here, right now. Anyone else want that? Anyone else want to change the world? That is what Jesus invites us into. But it is not an overnight process. It is a slow learning curve. It's not going to be easy. I mean, following Jesus does not mean my life becomes easy. It does not mean I step into heaven and all of a sudden just have this full life that he's created me for. It takes longer than that, right? 
We see that with the other disciples. We see that in the lives of the people around us. It's going to involve breaking down my pride, breaking down the sins I've come to love. It's going to involve hardship in life. I mean, Satan has lost the war, but he's a sore loser, right? And he's doing everything he can to hurt us on his way out. But the good news is that Jesus has given us authority over evil. More than that, Jesus has given us authority to do good. Being with Jesus brings with it the task of being sent out by him. That means the church should be a community that does more than just confess Jesus' name. I mean, that's what the demons did. They confessed, they knew who Jesus was. We can't just be sitting on the sidelines. We can't just be offering just another religious option for salvation. If that's all Christianity is, what am I doing here? We can't just retreat into the shell of comfortable Christianity where we don't get very real with each other and everyone smiles. We've been sent by Christ into the world to confront evil head on with the power of God. We need to be casting out demons, but not just the kind that you you think of in movies or we read of stories. The ones we don't want to talk about, we need to cast out the demons of greed. We need to cast out the demons of pride, of jealousy, of gossip. We need to cast out the demon of apathy, of lust. We need to be open and welcoming to broken people. And we need to pray bold prayers of healing, not just for physical stuff, though we need to do that too, but we need to be praying bold prayers of healing for loneliness. We need to be praying for healing from divorce. We need to be praying for healing from sexual abuse and insecurity. For some of us, what we need to do is accept the invitation first. We need to accept the invitation from Jesus and come out of the crowd. Now, I, we, we don't have a flesh, and je, uh, flesh in the flesh Jesus right here as a perfect example for us. But we have living examples of Jesus at work in each other's lives. That's what church is. It's a community of brothers and sisters who Jesus is at work in. And we have a living example of how Jesus is at work in their life. So no, I can't say, hey, Jesus is in here, follow this guy. But if you're someone that hasn't accepted the invitation to come out of the crowd yet, find someone who you see Jesus at work in their life and be with them. Open your life to them so that Jesus can work in your heart. This is not a solo thing. This is not done in private, this following Jesus thing. It's messy. And there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's awkwardness. And it's the way Jesus made it. For some of us, maybe we're the next step where we're okay with being with Jesus, but the whole being sent out thing is something we need to kick in the butt for. We need to get off the sidelines. Some of us need to start submitting those areas of our life that we hold on to ourselves. 
Dallas Willard, who's a really smart follower of Jesus, said that discipleship, following Jesus, is living my life as if Jesus were living my life. How should I live, or the way I should live, is doing what Jesus would do if he were me. What areas of my life am I not letting Jesus show me how to live in them? I mean, that's, that's something I'm chewing on right now because following Jesus isn't just, it's just hanging out on the mountainside where he called his disciples, where we get to be with him and learn from him and be away from the world. That's, that's not what it is, right? We're, we're sent into the world. And so what are areas of our life that we're, we're not letting Jesus have? This is one that I'm chewing on right now. There's some other things in here, maybe God's speaking to you already, but the part that I'm trying to do is figure out what areas of my life have I not yet submitted to Jesus so that he can be king of them? Because there's, there's lots. And so two areas that I'm, God's working on me right now is my pride and my money. You may not know this, but I kind of think I'm a big deal. I'm pretty funny, and uh, I know people, and I have, oh, and handsome, <laughs> keep it coming, that's okay, anything else? I, I think highly of myself, and it's something I've dealt with my whole life, and, and I also have like a really dry, sarcastic sense of humor, which when you put those two things together, it usually means I just offend people without realizing it. But then because of my pride, I'm like, oh, that's just their fault. They didn't get that. But lately, God's been convicting me, saying, no, Drew, that's not submitting to me. That's not loving the people like I want you to love them. So I've been asking God lately to help me realize in the times when I've offended someone, because honestly, I'm like, well, that's their fault for not getting it. Or it's one of those things where it's awkward. I'm like, well, I don't want to go talk to them right now. I'll send them a letter later. Or it's one of those things where I'm like, well, they were doing it wrong, so I had to show them how it's done. And it's me thinking, hiding myself and thinking of myself. But God's saying, no, in that moment, go back to them right now and apologize. And I don't like that. That means I have to humble myself and go, I was wrong. And I don't like that. I don't like being in the wrong. I don't like admitting that I've messed up. I don't like the awkwardness of that person that I didn't really know, and that's why they didn't really get my joke, going to them being like, hey, can I just submit myself to you and humbly ask for forgiveness? You know, maybe it wasn't a big deal, but you know, I need, to, I need to humble myself right now. And that's a small thing. You know, maybe it seems like that to you. It's a big thing for me, but God's teaching me through it, and he's working through that. Another thing that God's been teaching me to humble myself in is my money. Now, how many of you have done the, the Dave Ramsey financial peace thing? Anyone know or listen to his radio show? I did that two years ago, and man, I love that thing. And I've been like on my budget, and I paid off my credit cards, and I, I actually have a meager savings account now, and like I'm starting to feel like an adult, and it's great you know? And, and so, I mean, Dave Ramsey's a believer and, and he's really smart with the money. And, and so part of that is budgeting and even tithing and stuff. So I've been, I, you know, I've been doing that and I have really tight with my budget, but lately God's been telling me, you know, Drew, I need you to budget some money that's, that's for me, that I get to decide what to do with each month. And I was like, but God, I've got a tight budget. 
and I update my Excel spreadsheet three times a week. And <laughs> what do you mean? But he's like, no, over on the top, on top of your tithing, I need you to dedicate some money that I get to decide with each month. And so it's not a lot of money. It's a tiny little amount. But so far, it's been used to buy gift cards for people that God's telling me to bless. It's been used to buy coffee or lunch for someone that God says, go buy that person coffee. Now, that isn't big, but for me, honestly, it's freeing me up to be more okay with the idea of, yeah, I'll go to coffee with that person. Because before, it wasn't really my budget. And so I was being closed off to the people God was bringing to my life. And now he's saying, you know what? Hey, check that out. <laughs> Look at that. The money's there. Where'd that come from? I was like, well, you put it there. But it's been opening me up and helping me see that every, every encounter that I have with people is an opportunity to bless them just the way I've been blessed. And those are just two ways that I'm chewing on this right now. And it's, it's a slow learning process. And they're not even that great of examples. But they're living examples that I'm dealing with in my life. And it's ways that, that God is teaching me right now. So what about you? What is God saying to you? You have a Kairos card in your bulletin. And if, if you use them every week, awesome. I hope you're sharing them with people. I hope God's actually talking to you and you're, you're discerning what that is. If you haven't used one, I really invite you. I know some people get really hung up on, well, I don't know if that's God's voice to me or just my ADD. And I'll tell you, my ADD kicks in hardcore when I'm praying. But the cool thing is God made me the way I am and he can use my brain the way he made it to still teach me things. And so if you're out there and something seemed to pique an interest for you this morning or maybe something hit home a little harder or maybe a random word stuck out, whether or not you think that's God's voice showing that to you, why don't you just take that and take it to God and speak with him about it? And say, God, are you trying to teach me something here? Why, why did my heart kind of, when Drew said that? So for the rest of the service, we're going to have some more songs. We're going to have communion stuff. Use this. Talk with God. What is God trying to say to you? I mean, is he, is he telling you to get off the fence and to start to experience his full life? Is he telling you to stick around for a real relationship with him instead of getting a quick fix and moving on with your own life? Is he telling you and showing you the places in your life that you need to submit to him so that he can bring about transformation in you? What is it for you? Because the awesome thing about our God is that he loves us enough to take us the way we are, but not leave us there. And he wants to walk with us. He wants us to be with him and be sent out by him so that he can bring about transformation in our lives so we can experience the full life that he offers, the way life was meant to be lived, the way he created it to be. So that's the invitation that's being presented to you today. I want you to wrestle with God of what's he trying to say to you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us. There's no way that we've done anything to deserve it. 
There's no way we've done anything that would allow us to feel entitled. But a lot of times, God, we're just sticking around watching you instead of following you. So Father, I pray that you just break in to our hearts and show us the places that we need to follow you more. That you break into our hearts and help us lower those walls of protection we've built up around us so that we don't let you or anyone else in. Be with us and speak to us this morning and show us what it is you're calling us to do as we walk out these doors and continue our life of following you. In your holy and precious name, amen.